Hello, and welcome to the Sailing and Cruising the East Coast of the United States podcast. I'm Balaam Usitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. This is our podcast about sailing the East Coast of the United States. In some episodes, we'll focus on passages and destinations. And in other episodes, we'll talk about boats, equipment, and techniques. And when we come across an interesting person, we'll try to get them as a guest on the show. But before we dive into this episode, we need to say a special thank you to our supporters. Several listeners are supporting the podcast via Patreon. If you would like to join them, just go to patreon.com forward slash sailing the east. And thanks again to all of our supporters. Yeah, thanks again, Bela. Great to see you. Um, you know, this is what the week after Thanksgiving, uh, at least for you in the US. How was your Thanksgiving, my friend? Hey, you know, it was very nice. Uh, we've sort of developed a tradition here that started a number of years ago when when uh, Andy, my younger son, was uh, uh, doing a fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Uh, we went down there for Thanksgiving and we did a turkey trot. Turkey trot, for those non-US listeners, is uh, uh, it's a tradition that a lot of cities host or towns or organizations host a 5K typically run on Thanksgiving Day morning. It, it, uh, and then you go home and in the afternoon you have your big Thanksgiving dinner, your big family get together. So we did that uh, in Saratoga. And uh, so it's five, 5K, 5,000 meter, 5, meters or 3.1 miles. And this year was really special because we had three generations of runners there this year. So I was, I was there, my son and his wife, so Jason and his wife, Kara, their two daughters uh, were, are ages seven and nine. And uh, so, and it was the first time they had ever run any sort of organized event. So it was really great. All, uh, you know, three generations of runners and it was very nice. And it was a, the Saratoga Turkey Trot's a pretty big event. There was like 3,600 runners. So, you know, they close roads and, you know, so for the kids, that's kind of neat, right? They're running down the middle of these roads with all these other people and a bunch of people that dressed up in costumes and stuff. So it's sort of a, it, it's, it's not a competitive type of an event. It's sort of a fun event. Uh, but so did that, the girls, wait, did the, did the girls run three miles? Yeah. They ran and walked, they ran some, walked some. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. It was impressive because they had. You know, I mean, they're active kids, but they they were pretty good. Yeah, they they did much better than I thought they would, given they were basically getting off the couch. <laughs> you know, yeah. someone someone from my age can't get off the couch and do that. But well, I'm uh, lucky to just get off the couch, let alone <laughs> run. You know, All right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so they ran it, uh, and and we all had a good time. So that, and then they actually came over uh, after they got cleaned up. They came over to our house, and we had Thanksgiving at our house. So uh, that was uh, it was a great event. So, Mike, I know Thanksgiving is sort of uniquely an American thing based upon, uh, you know, tradition and stuff. So is there something like that in Germany? No, I think you're right. I think Thanksgiving is really a uniquely American holiday. Um, it's just a normal workday here. The closest thing that I kind of think about is... Um, you know, in southern Germany, they have Oktoberfest, which isn't really a harvest festival or a Thanksgiving festival. It really was the celebrate the wedding of a Bavarian king um, and a and queen. 
but uh but it's kind of been adopted as kind of maybe this harvest festival fall festival at the end of the year kind of thing but that's not like a sit down family thing that's usually drink a bunch of beer and eat a bunch of food yeah yeah um so yeah so there is nothing the same and so that is it's one of the things that the things that i miss about the u.s is the family thanksgiving dinners and um but we go to work and we did come home and watched you know the the noon football game i think it was lions packers and the lions you know i'm from detroit originally so i've been through many decades of pain um really all five of my decades uh, or six of my decades have been painful uh watching the lions and they lost again even though they've had a really good season um and we usually make a small dinner on thursday with a little something and then saturday we maybe have we had some friends over and make them a little american thanksgiving um and i did find fresh cranberries this year grown in of all places poland Wow. I don't know. It's a global world. So that was that was our day. So no big deal. Just go to work. You know, kind of weird. But I don't know. So, Bela, I'm curious. Who's our guest today? Yeah. So today we have a guest, uh, Doug Milburn. So uh, Doug is a listener who reached out to me uh, several weeks ago uh, via email. And um, he was commenting on one of our previous episodes. And, uh, and I just kind of exchanging a few emails with him. I said, gee, Doug, you'd be a great guest for the show. Uh, he's from Nova Scotia, lives in Nova Scotia, is a longtime sailor. And uh, he's sailed both monohulls and catamarans. And he sort of sails catamarans these days and what I would describe as high-performance catamarans. Um, and uh, so we had a great conversation. And uh, we talked about boats of course and we talked a bit about nova scotia so uh i think uh i think folks will enjoy this episode excellent you know it's always good in my opinion to have some canadians on the podcast to balance out kind of the north of the border south of the border split uh so yeah so let's get right into your interview with doug milburn hey doug welcome to the podcast well thank you very much bela pleasure to be here yeah super so where where are you uh geographically so uh, remember the old maps they used to make in the Middle Ages and they had the flat earth and they had the elephants or whatever <laughs> holding it up. I'm right at the edge there where the water pours off. So uh, uh, I live in Sydney, Nova Scotia. Uh, Sydney is uh, actually on Cape Breton Island and uh, we're in the southeastern end of Cape Breton Island. And uh, it was always kind of sort of as far east as you could drive in North America for a lot of years. And Newfoundland's farther east than we are, but uh, you had to get a, on a boat to Newfoundland. So. Uh, that's where I sail on the on the Bredore Lakes, oh, where my boat is most of the time. Yeah, and I, I've only been up there once. Uh, as listeners will know, I had a trip to Nova Scotia and brought a boat back from Nova Scotia from Halifax down to Baltimore. Uh, so, are those lakes up there? Are they freshwater or saltwater? No, the saltwater lakes, uh, Bredore Lakes, would be, you know, let's say sort of sized. It's got a bunch of different sections. Uh, it is probably from the northeast end down to the, the, the west end, I'm going to say maybe 75 nautical miles long. Uh, and uh, it's, it's salt water. There's a big channel. Two, two channels come into the ocean. Three ways to get in. Two channels in the ocean. One's uh, called the uh, Big Bredore or Great Bredore. Uh, and it's, uh, there's, there's a, a, a big bridge, 120-foot clearance on it. Uh, you know, major shipping comes in and out of that. Uh, there's Little Bredore, which is has some power lines and a low bridge over power boats, uh, recreational power boats can get in. South End, where most people from your neck of the woods who sail to the Bredore Lakes would come in the South End, and it's uh, St. Peter's Canal. 
So canal, mid-1800s, cut through a chunk of rock, and a little bridge has to swing for you to get into the lake that way. Yeah. And and is it tidal or very little tide? Uh, it's it's very little tide. The, the uh, Big Bedore Channel, there's a big tidal current, and at that channel is probably 20 nautical miles. It's off the top of my head, 20 nautical miles long, uh, maybe 15 nautical miles, something like that. And uh, maybe, you know, half nautical mile wide at the mouth. And uh, so it's got a big tidal current, you know, it'll go extreme tides. It'll run, you know, four knots easy, five, sometimes six knots on the extreme tide. Wow. So that water comes in and out. So you get up in farther in the lakes, it's, it's a little more brackish, you know, it's runoff mixing with that. The tide in the lake, uh, you know, probably, I think like a centimeter or something like that on the, on the yeah. daily. So it, it makes life really good. Deep water, uh, very little rock to hit. It's all gravel and it's, uh, 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 yeah, deep water. It's up to 900 feet deep. And uh, so there's very little to hit and uh, lots of places, beaches with <clears throat> very steep drop-offs. The beaches, you can, you know, take a boat like yours in and put the nose up on the beach and uh, get together with a bunch of people and have a bonfire or whatever else. And your keel can be in 15, 20 feet of water. Yeah, what's the typical typical boating season up there? Uh, okay, I'm a, I'm a little hardcore myself. I'll put my boat in as soon as I can. Uh, you know, May if I can. The water the water's cold in May. Uh, water gets really warm and uh, in 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 the sun. Well, really warm. I don't know you call it really warm. It, it'll get up to mid seventies, just low, low to mid seventies for the water in the summer. But I get in May, cold water water warms up. Uh, and, uh, fall my boat's still in. I'll, I'll do one more overnight before I wrap her up for the season, but I'm, I'm considered hard car. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, I mean, my boat goes in May 1st, comes out November 1st. So the, but, but people are harder core than me. <laughs> does, does, does that, does that lake freeze at all in the winter? Uh, usually just in the coves and, and, and sheltered water. Although every now and then you'll get a, we had one, I think about 10 or 15, it was probably the better part of 15 years ago. We had one where the whole lake froze right over and you could literally walk from one side to the other, but that, that, that's odd. That, that's absolutely yeah. not normal. Now, is there, is there a lot of marinas up there and is there a large boating community? Uh, we're low population density. You know, there's, in, uh, I'm in Southeast in the, the county, there is a hundred thousand in the municipality. And, uh, you know, I think the whole island might be 150,000, if that. And, you know, the island would be, you know, over 100 miles, you know, dimension. So it's low population density. Uh, there are, yeah, there, there's a yacht club in Port Hawkesbury on, on the eastern end. There's a yacht club in St. Peter's, Aeroshot in the south end, Aeroshot's in the ocean, St. Peter's in the lake. Uh, Bedeck is the big boating center, and certainly where... You know, the center for, you know, people who'd sail up in the States would uh, get to Bedeck. That was Alexander yes. Graham's home in his later part of his life. Uh, Sydney has, Sydney area has two, well, other people tell you three yacht clubs in Sydney, but they're all small. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's not the scale. You know, I sail down around your neck of the woods and I'm kind of wowed by the size of the marinas and the, the number of boats and the, the the crowds and the anchorages and everything else. So, Yeah. Yeah. And is is it mostly sailboats or powerboats or, you know, 50-50? Uh, the evil stink pot powerboats uh, outnumber us, uh, us sailors, but uh, healthy sailing community. And there's, there's you know, sailing community, uh, 
you know, mostly cruises. We have, uh, we race my club. I, I race our catamaran at our, our club and, uh, you know, Bedeck has, has its own racing. Uh, there's some racing in Sydney, North, North Sydney Yacht Club has, has, has racing. Yeah. Very nice. And is there, uh, is, is there any charter companies up there? Uh, very, very minimal infrastructure. Uh, mm. there's, uh, there, there's a, a a guy, a friend of mine. Uh, uh, it's called Sail CBI, as in Cape Breton Island, I, th I think. And I'm doing his name injustice there, but he's got a uh, catamaran. It's actually an Alpha built in Long Island uh, that he bought uh, not that many years ago, and he he, he charters that thing, and he does uh, does mostly crude charters on it. There's been charters over the years, but uh, you know, seasons relatively short here. So it's tough to, you know, you got, you know, three months of really nice weather here to, yeah. to do chartering. So it's a bit of a tough business in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know uh, just a little bit north of where I live, uh, Lake Champlain, which is about a hundred mile long lake. Uh, and that has a very, a fairly robust chartering business on it. But here again, the season's short. It's, you know, it's, and that lake freezes over solid. Uh, so it's probably, you know, the season there is June to September 1st. And I would say two thirds of the charter boats all head south to the Caribbean for the, for the winter. Yeah. So, you know, they charter it down in the Caribbean in the winter, and then they come up, uh, up to Lake Champlain for the, for the summer season. So, uh, and just calibrate me. So if I flew into Halifax, um, or I sailed into Halifax, how long would it take me to get up to where you are by sailboat, let's say? Uh, so I went to Halifax in September. We did a, a quick hop up to Halifax just for fun. Uh, I was actually going to be on the South Shore and cruise the South Shore, but then one of the hurricanes turned up this way. It didn't really hit mm, that That's right. Day. But I said, I, I think I better hightail at home. Uh, we are St. Peter's Canal to Halifax, I believe is 140 nautical miles. And uh, it is, you know, prevailing southwest wind, which kind of unsure. Nova Scotia runs, you know, I'm out there leaving Halifax, going to the canal. Uh, it was darn near magnetic east. You know, everybody thinks the mm -hmm. coast going north south. It doesn't. We're, we're just we're way out to the east. That's right. So, That's right. Yes, southwest wind comes on shore. It's like Maine. You know, it comes on. It's it's sloppy. Uh, tends to create fog off the Nova Scotia shore. Uh, eastern shore of Nova Scotia is vast. Uh, you know, like Nova Scotia coast is like Maine, rocky, you know, cold water, foggy, incredibly beautiful, you know, little villages, absolutely wonderful people. Uh, and so some people will do that trip and stop in some places. I tend to just go out and, and just, just do it. Uh, you know, we, we left, uh, I'm trying to think when we left the canal, actually I left my dock in the Bredor Lakes. So I would have had, uh. I left at noon in the Bredore Lakes and the cat and I, uh, I was off and Halifax approaches at nine in the morning. Okay. So, so we, we, you know, we would average eight, nine knots. I did good, good, good wind. I actually motored the first part of it, no wind. And then the wind came up. It was just perfect. So we were, you know, in the morning we're doing nine, nine and a half knots. So we were coming along good, but normally I look at a 24 hour trip. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very nice. And, uh, if if I went up there on on my boat, 
uh, besides sailing around the lake, what other sort of attractions are up there? What other things are there for me to see? Well, you know what? Let me give you the first thing that happens when you come up. And uh, I have I bought two boats in the states and have done the, the sail up once from Chesapeake, once from uh, Booth Bay, Maine. And you get this magic thing when you slog up through the ocean. You know, Mid Atlantic, it's a little different. You get off Maine, Nova Scotia, it's different. And you come through the uh, the canal, and all of a sudden you're in this protected, you know, pristine lake. And it's just this magical experience uh, that you know people do that trip and they go, "Wow, Bordeaux lakes are just this, this, this just massive change in your space from rolling around, getting bounced around." And, yes. And and uh, you know and 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 the weather, it's Atlantic, it's you know Northeast Atlantic weather, and all of a sudden you're into toasty warm water, no fog, you know, and and, and pristine. So I, that's the prime experience for it. But if you come to Cape Breton, Cape Breton's an interesting place. Uh, where I live is old steel coal country. So they started mining, uh, the French started mining here in 1700. And a vast coal deposit here, mined for 300 years. And there's like 45 huge industrial scale coal mines. Uh, the Combined Steel and Coal Company here is largest private sector employer in Canada in the middle of the 20th century. And they mine 3% of the coal that was here. So that's the southeastern end, and uh, so it was industrial, uh, and you know it's got it, you know U.S. Uh, engineer might some interesting industrial history around this, some stuff history of mining, uh, some major advances in steel making happened here and stuff like that. Then there's also a place called Fortress Lewisburg, which is a recreation of the uh, back to the you know 1700 and King Louis in France before the Revolution. Uh, built this massive military installation uh, that was, and I forget, you know, you hear all these superlatives near there, but I think it was the third biggest community in North America in, at yeah. 1700. And, uh, and and this godforsaken spot that's this point rocky, you know, cold, I shouldn't say that. My my friends who live in Lewisburg might be offended by by me calling their place godforsaken. But, uh, you know, the weather, it's, you know, it's a microclimate. It's foggy. It's the tip where the, that, that, that sort of East Coast, Maine, Nova Scotia water hits the warm water from, coming out of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And, and, and so you just get bog and cold. I mean, they built this fortress there, There's, you know, 10,000 people plus in the, you know, within the walls. And, uh, and, and that's re, rebuilt and it's really cool to see. Uh, the uh, Marconi you know, first wireless service came out of uh, Cape Breton Transatlantic Wireless was here. The whole cable transatlantic cable world was out of here. Uh, northern part of the island is actually middle part of the island is Bedak, you know, major sailing sort of sailing hub. Uh, and that was uh, Alexander Graham Bell's home when mm. he, uh, you know, he earned enough money to be able to afford to live in Cape Breton, as I like to put it. <laughs> and, uh, it's yeah, that's a place to live. But uh, anyway, he 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 moved there uh, and did some really interesting stuff. There's a museum there. Uh, first flight in the British Empire actually really redesigned the airplane from what the Wrights did. Uh, you know, they they warped, went twisted their wings to turn. He invented the aileron. Anyway, a whole bunch of the modern airplane was developed in Bedak. Uh, hydrofoil was developed in Bedak. It was ripping around back in 1910 or 1920, and uh, hydrofoil at 60 miles an hour on the water and uh and scaring people so the deck uh northern part is 
very uninhabited. There's a few communities, a good place to sail into if you want to sail around the island. And uh, north of the island is the Appalachians meeting the ocean. And it's stunning. There's a plateau up there and there's, you know, it's almost 2,000 feet high and then cliffs and, you know, all the beautiful mountains that you're part of there just hit the water there. It's, it's yeah. a pretty cool place. Cabot yeah. Trail, the big road that goes up around there. Very nice. Very nice. Sounds absolutely wonderful. That's, that's and I remember, <laughs> yeah, I remember on, on my trip, uh, we went from uh, Halifax down to Shelburne. And um, my recollection is there's lots and lots of nice harbors all around Nova Scotia. There, There's not a lot of commercial marinas, <laughs> but there's a lot of fishing harbors that, you know, may have a, a, a half a dozen mooring buoys or whatever that you can pick up for the night or you can anchor. Uh, so there's a lot of places to pull into and visit nice little cute little fishing towns. Um, but there's not a lot of commercial kind of marinas in the typical way there are, you know, where I sail, you know, <laughs> in New England. Is that a correct assessment? Uh, you know, South Shore and Eastern Shore, Nova Scotia, Bay of Fundy, uh, Northern Shore, mainland Nova Scotia, very much so. Uh, outside of Cape Breton, uh, very much so. Bordeaux and Sydney, we all keep our boats uh, on, tend to be on, you know, slips on floating docks. And uh, yeah, and there, there's, yeah, uh, there, there, there's, yeah, there's lots of floating docks around. Well, my sense, lots. The the total number wouldn't be very large, but our infrastructure is good. If you want to pull into Bedak and uh, you know be in a floating dock rather than out in a mooring, uh, yeah, no, no problem at all. Sydney, no problem at all. Uh, St. Peter's, the village of St. Peter's, has uh, has good facility, and there's some other ones. Port Oxbury, Arishat have that facility too. So uh, to say it's highly developed would be not truly there. Bedak has good, great marine services. Uh, you know, if you want to get your boat lifted and the like, and the you know, full service uh, marine, uh, yeah, Sydney's got, you know, I, I sorry, I couldn't even do a count for you, but yeah, between the three yacht clubs, there's lots of slips there. So, so yeah. it, it, it's not like it's not the rural, you know, coast, uh, you know, Atlantic coast. That, that that's fishing country and fishing boats everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was real impressed uh, when I was up there, and it, it was just beautiful country really nice friendly people uh just it was it was great i i i highly recommend and i'd love to try to get back there again so i want to switch gears a little bit and and stop talking specifically about uh, nova scotia and talk a little bit about your sailing experience uh i you reached out to me in, in an email and that's sort of how we connected uh, and it sounds like you have a vast amount of sailing experience have have had very different types of boats so let's talk a little bit about that. Give us a little background there. Sure. I, uh, I also had a natural love for boats as attracted to them, but it just sort of wasn't in the family plans nor budgets when I was a kid. Uh, but uh, when I was in university, uh, uh, anyway, very good friend of mine, still a very good friend of mine, introduced me to windsurfing. And that was my first experience with uh, with sail. And I got addicted very, very quickly. And windsurfing is a great way to start because you literally feel every force on the, yeah. on the, the both the above the water, you know, sail forces, but also the forces from your board. So I, I did that. Eventually, uh, 
my wife and I were, uh, I, I lived in Ontario for about 10 years when I went to grad school. Uh, and uh, anyway, I, I windsurfed up there. Anyway, at a certain point, I got the opportunity to buy a uh, my first keelboat. It was a uh, Hershoff Islander. So see, uh, in one of your episodes, you talk about Hershoff family designers. Yeah. The son of Nathaniel, I believe, is the guy who designed this. It was the boat was a classic uh, mahogany on oak, uh, bronze, cast bronze fittings and winches and everything else. Beautiful boat, uh, 22-foot uh, day sailor. And bought that in Ontario, trailered it back to Nova Scotia, kept it at my uh, mooring at my parents' cottage on the Bredore Lakes and the Great Bredore Channel. Uh, and had you know lots of years of uh, of sailing that, and that was my first introduction, and uh, and just a gorgeous boat to sail. It's so classic, and uh, and just sailed beautifully. Uh, businesses and young kids took its toll on owning a wooden boat, and uh, so I ended up uh, sold the boat for a few years, got back into it after a couple of years. And then I bought a, uh, my next boat I bought was a Hunter, that uh, was 133, so a Cherubini Hunter, 1977. Really, uh, you know, I was totally financially constrained at that time. And uh, it was one of these boats that a guy kept that he had it for a lot of years. And uh, he, he, he loved the boat for a long time, but, you know, people get later in the boat ownership, the boat, you know, everything deteriorates, it needed updating yeah. and everything else. So I got it for great price, bought it in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. Uh, sailed it back uh, and just puttered away. I, I like fixing boats as well, sailing them. So puttered away and just gave it a, a, a real facelift. We had that for a number of years and, and cruised, you know, Nova Scotia, Gulf St. Lawrence, Newfoundland, Magdalens, uh, all those areas in that boat. And uh, getting to a point where life was treating me a little bit better. And I said, yeah, time to upgrade, uh, uh, upgrade in that boat. Actually, that boat, that was hull number three. Of, of hunter 33 and they went on to build about a thousand of them so very yeah. very successful boat and uh, as, as you know hunter uh you know great lineage and boat design build absolutely great boats went to buy another boat we were leaning at either it was going to be a, a, a more modern hunter or a catalina and i i couldn't i'm, I'm a fan I, I love optimizing my sailing i race a little bit i'm not a, i don't have serious racing around but i i really enjoy racing uh, getting the most out of the boat and uh, I couldn't find any boats on the East Coast that had, you know, everything had wing keel. And, yes. Uh, and I know I'm getting down to fine points when you talk about wing keel versus going for the the, the full fin keel. But there's a significant performance difference, and I couldn't find it. Somewhere in my mind, catamaran got in my head. And I looked at catamaran, and uh, yeah, that's one of the things prompted me to email you. And I, I looked at catamaran, and I said, you know the, the 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 broad belief that catamarans don't sell upwind well, and I go, well, there's half my sailing. When I right. go somewhere, I, I I love the challenge of getting from here to there, no matter what the wind is, and and going, okay. Uh, I ended up settling on I couldn't afford a daggerboard cat, which we can talk about daggerboard cat mini keel, and I ended up buying a they call it a centerboard cat. So it was a uh, it was a, a Gemini 105MC, which are, you know, they're designed and built on Chesapeake Bay, uh, America Catamaran. Very successful. I forget how many. It's 1,200 or about 1,400 of them built. Uh, very, very successful boat. Uh, narrower than most catamarans, 14 feet wide. 
And this guy, Tony Smith, was just brilliant. He said, that was his design point that he started with. And his reason for that is so he could get it in a normal slip and a normal travel lift to pull it in and out of the water. Right. You know, which right. was important to me at the time. And uh, just budget-wise and practicality-wise. And uh, But he built it to sail well. And it had uh, center boards, so triangular boards. In, instead of most cats have... Some big charter cats, condo cats, as a lot of people call them, have something they call mini keels, which are yes, long, shallow keels. Uh, and uh, this thing had center boards, and not only that, but it had which could kick up if you hit anything, they'd kick up, and not only that, but it had rudders that would kick up if you hit anything. Really cool design in the rudders, and you pull them down with a, a set of ropes, and it also had a drive leg, like a stern drive, and, and a powerboat, an inboard diesel engine. Uh, and, and this drive leg that went down off the bridge deck, it's only one, but it was steerable like an outboard motor. So they can handle well. Just a brilliant design. Um, the execution in the drive leg, leg was sketchy, but I, you know, I have a company that does uh, a number of companies that do mechanical stuff. So uh, we ended up redesigning that. And uh, anyway, I ended up, that was my, my catamaran introduction to catamaran sailing up the few years when I, I bought a new one. And uh, my, my, my latest boat, uh, I uh, sold the Gemini in uh, 2000. It was October 2019, end of 2019 season. Uh, and I'd ordered it first time I ever bought a brand new boat. So uh, Seawind. So Seawind's uh, an Australian maker of, uh, of cats. And they're a little bit lighter, a little bit more sparter inside, a little bit better performing than the typical sort of charter cats, big, heavy charter cats. And uh, they had a model in particular that interested me, uh, and it, it's an 1190 Sport, it's called. And in this thing, they did something, instead of having mini keels or center boards, they put dagger boards on it, which is the gold standard for sailing performance. Dagger rudders, they had these performance racing style rudders on it. Right. They put a rig that was taller and a very, very modern rig on it with a flat top sail and uh and and it's got a self-tacking jib uh it's got a bowsprit on it that that drops down and it's got an asymmetric spinnaker and what they call a screecher reaching spinnaker similar yeah. to code zero so it's uh this thing's a you know it's a it, it's it's not a full performance catamaran like there's names like Romare gunboat uh daz cats actually my favorite i almost bought a daz cat english built boat uh, you know, boats that sail 20 knots easily. And I got to settle with, you know, getting to, to 10 comfortably in, on this boat. But, uh, and uh, dagger boards, that rig, it goes up, upwind like a charm. Uh, it's fun to race. I race the thing club racing all against monohulls. I really wish there was other multis in the area, but there aren't. And uh, yeah, just, we just have a lot of fun with the boat. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, one of the things that popped into my mind is uh, you've had, so this last boat you bought was a new boat. Yep. The other previous boats were, were you were not the first owner. Talk to me a little bit about the difference in those experiences, right? Cause I think a lot of people contemplate, should I buy a new boat or, you know, should I buy a used boat? Are there in your mind, what are sort of the pluses and minuses of those two options? Yeah, sure. And it's, you know, start off with the same thing, like everything in boating depends on what you want. And yeah. uh, the, uh, 
I was, I would have happily bought a two, three-year-old boat. Uh, and I mean, the practical side of it, uh, you know, you, you got some depreciation taken out of it, which is okay, but uh, I'm going to own this boat for a while. So it's not the biggest thing, but, uh, you know, th there's a debugging on it that you got to do in a new boat. Right. But to say that you bought a, a used boat and you're not going to have to debug stuff and fix this and that, that, you know, the, the previous owner hasn't fixed or, you know, good luck. It's a boat. You're going to fix things. Uh, the uh, watch your maker. I did my research. One of the reasons I, I chose Seawind, uh, I was down to Daz Cat or, or, or Seawind. Uh, the Seawind um, and, and Daz Cat both had a, just a great reputation that they will look after the little issues that some of the other larger boat makers who are famous for being difficult on, on warranty side of things. But, uh, Seawind also makes a, such a bulletproof boat. It's, um, it, it's, uh, uh, resin infusion technique. So, and anybody, you know, people are up on boat building or not, but you know, most fiberglass to the history of fiberglass has been hand laid. You know, you put a little bit of resin, wet down some cloth, put it down layer by layer. Resin infusion, you lay down all your cloth, but you put your mold, put your gel coat inside, lay your cloth on it, and you put a plastic membrane over the whole thing with a bunch of little valves in it and a plumbing system, and you put a vacuum in there, and then you suck resin in there, and you suck all the air out of it, and it just builds a great boat. Uh, sea wind, I go out, and, you know, I can bang through 10-foot seas and go down below, and there is not a creak or groan in the boat. So everything... Sea wind built was absolutely rock solid. Now, I problems on the new boat. Uh, <laughs> it was funny. Uh, so Sea Wind's Australian. They actually moved to Vietnam. Whole company ownership. Everybody uh, currency issues operating in Vietnam. Labor shortage uh, or in, in Australia. So they they moved out uh, for practical, very practical reasons, and uh, went to Vietnam. Built better boats because they, they have more labor there and yeah. they actually put into building better boats uh anyway this is actually hilarious uh i had freeze damage in my boat so it arrived in march in the end of march and in, in halifax came by container ship and it came via suez canal and these guys have been shipping boats around you know 35 year history in their company first time they had freeze damage same time there's another boat left a week before me went the other way went to florida through the panama canal and it had freeze damage. And these guys in all the dealers said they never had freeze damage before. The uh, the one through the, the Panama Canal went to Japan and then to Seattle. See so a great circled up by the Aleutian yep. Islands, right? Yeah. They caught some freezing weather. Uh, you know, mine caught freezing weather as watching it come across the container ship and uh, off Newfoundland. You know, a little bit of cold weather came down. So they hit some minus 10 Celsius weather. So I'd freeze damage and I, I lost uh, you know, a bunch of plumbing fixtures and one of the engine heat exchangers went. So there's pain yeah. in the butt, number one. It was the middle of COVID. So trying to get it fixed, you know, it normally would have come, like my dealer was in Chesapeake, would have come there. If they had problems, they would have fixed it all. So that was a, a bit of a pain in the butt. Uh, uh, actually, I'll tell you a little little humorous thing. I, I talked to one of the, the mites from Australia uh, yeah. and, and, and uh, I forget his name. Anyway, great, great, great people. Absolutely wonderful people. So he was telling me, and he said this very sincerely, different people's point of view. So he says, yeah, we have a real problem here in Vietnam. I, we told them to blow the water out of it and everything else, but trying to get them to follow the procedure was a little bit of a challenge, he said. He says, absolutely great people, but a little bit of a challenge because they don't really understand cold. 
And, and, and I said, I'm talking to him, I said, this is kind of funny. I said, where are you from, Mike? And, and he said, uh, <laughs> Cairns. And he says, yeah, it's a little warm in Cairns, never gets below 35 Celsius. He says, but I know what cold weather is because I lived in San Francisco for four years. So, <laughs> yeah. Different right. views of the world. So anyway, you get these little debugging things. I had a couple electronics, my, my B&G electronics, uh, just a couple of little things went wrong on it. So I, it was really good. Oh, my heating system wasn't the other thing, a hydronic heating system in the boat, mm -hmm. which I think in a boat in our latitude, man, oh man, talk about a different experience in May and, and, yeah, and yeah. November, right? And and they had some problems and it was uh, defects from the manufacturer of the, of the heat exchangers in it actually. And, uh, you know, again, it was a pain in the butt for me. But other yeah. than that, it's been pretty darn good. My used boats, stuff came that was tired, stuff broke, and everything else. I had to replace stuff too. So six one, half dozen another. You ain't getting off free for buying a new boat, I think is the point of that long-winded uh, discussion of that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's my impression. That's why I asked the question. You know, when you buy a used boat, you sort of anticipate, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop 10% of the purchase price on upgrades or or whatever, you know thing you have whatever number you have in your own mind uh and on a new boat i think about all the other new things i buy like a new car or a new tv it's i mean the quality of stuff is remarkable but somehow boats still haven't they're still like cars were in the 50s and 60s <laughs> yeah. you know what i i tell you and the business side of this and again i'm i'm deeply in my business life, uh, low volume manufacturing. Yeah. You know, that's where the challenge is. There's a great, there's a blog on SeaWinds site, uh, that I found absolutely fascinating and appreciating the boat building business, right? It's, it's like one layer up from craft, even when they're at bigger volumes, uh, you know, from everything I can tell and everything I've seen, SeaWind had a talk about moving from Australia to Vietnam. They said in Australia, they'd hire shipwrights. And, yes. and and this is one example they used on, on the blog and and, and okay, a couple of things it put and I put these two things together. Number one, there's a dealer when I was doing my internet research. There's an Australian dealer of Sea Winds that said when they moved to uh, Vietnam, they got the thing you'd say, "Hey, you're going to a lower wage country to make more money and everything else." And he said, "Now nah, Sea Wind put that they moved out to Australia because you couldn't currency. We had that problem in Canada for a while. In, in my businesses, were export." Uh, and try and do that when your currency's out of whack. Right. That's right. really that and labor shortage, you know, massive resource boom in Australia, selling iron ore and coal to China, driving the whole economy. So so they moved out for that reason. Uh and 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 what you know the cynics would say, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll show you two boats, show me a Vietnam boat, show me a, an Australian boat, and the Australian boat's obviously gonna be better. This guy said, uh I've done exactly that because I've had the challenge over and over again. Everybody gets them 180 degrees opposite. The quality and the build quality is better on the on the Vietnamese boats. And then I'm digging into that because I'm manufacturing entrepreneur uh, and uh, and I'm digging into that, uh, you know, solving problems and how to do quality systems at very low, exceedingly low volumes. But I've been at that for 20 years and. Uh, and, and it's a real challenge. So anyway, you get that insight. And he says, number one, the guy says they put way more time into it. Every weld, they got time to grind and smooth out every weld. The stainless steel work on them is beautiful, et cetera. So that's just more labor, more crap. 
but there was another blog there and I'm going, I, I think I got, I get the insight on it. And he said, uh, you know, in our Australian boats, uh, you know, if somebody wanted a different model head put in the thing, yes, get to the shipwright, you know, here's the drawing for the bolt hole circle and whatever else you got to move it this far over. Can you just do that? Yeah, sure. And he says, Vietnamese were, he says at first, very frustrating. He says, we'd have to tell them how to do everything and write it down exactly how to do it because these people had no experience in it. But he said, incredibly great workers would follow the instructions to a T and very, very good skills, right? And 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 and, and then I put it together, as you would understand it. Uh, that's called quality systems. That's called an ISO system. That's what it is. That's right. Moving into boat building. So they, they got that pushed on them. But it's just fascinating that the volumes in boat building tend to be so darn low that you know automotive good we're going to do a hundred thousand of this you know over, over the next couple of years in your boat good i'm going to do a hundred of these over the next couple of years if i'm right. exceedingly successful so it's that, that, that right. that's where it all is that's that's what it is yeah you know i i understand exactly what you're saying i mean i, I was in the medical device business for a number of years and we made low volumes i mean we made 20 units a year but we you we had all that process control in place and and you know it was strictly enforced and that ha we had to do that because it was a medical device but it also demonstrated to me sort of what you're saying right if you have to if you write a bunch of stuff down and you're specific about how to do it and and you have good skilled labor pool and they can follow those instructions you'll get consistency at least they may all break <laughs> at least yep. it'll be consistent yep. and then you can fix it and i think it's that lack of consistency that that sort of frustrates me oftentimes where we say well it's it's low volume uh, that's just the way it is and and i say to myself no, no I, I don't accept that as an answer <laughs> right i think if you put in the time and energy and, and there's lots of examples of low volume manufacturing that is the utmost quality. Now, there's a premium price you may pay for that, but of the utmost quality. So, so I just so find it interesting in boats that they sort of haven't crossed that chasm yet, right? They're still sort of, and it's generally accepted by the boat buying public. It's like, okay, that's part of the way it is, right? I'm, I expect this new product that I paid three quarters of a million dollars for, and I'm going to I'm going to, it's going to be in the shop for, for two or three months getting fixed because stuff's going to not be done properly or break. I, I find it frustrating. So, you know, and again, not to go too deep in this, but one of my companies sitting in here, uh, we make metal electronic enclosures, parts, et cetera, for science and engineering. And we've become the name in that across North America. And uh, we go, you know, we'll sell to, you know, uh, scientists at NASA. I mean, every name, everybody in tech buys from us. You know, the private space is our biggest customers, uh, aerospace, medical, you name it. So our challenge has been specifically that. So our volumes are exceedingly small. Uh, 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 most of what we do, 60% uh, of what we do, we'll see once. So they're one-off jobs. Right. right. And, and that world is you know done by small shops. The quality, it, it, you measure the quality, it's terrible we're down now sub 1% defect to customer on that. So we've solved this problem, know exactly how to solve it. And the boat building world, that's my my love, my hobby love is boats. I, I like the technology side of it too. And I just, yeah, the same same place you're coming from, 
come on, guys, you can do this. And and Sea Wind yeah. does seem to be doing it. They're, 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 yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, and 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 you'll problem. get you'll get you know some folks starting to do it, and that'll drive the rest of the industry. It'll it'll just like the Japanese car manufacturers forced the American car manufacturers in the '60s and '70s to make build better cars. The same thing will happen in the boat business, right? So, absolutely. Uh, hey, and, anyway, let's let's stop. Let's you know rabbit hole there. Like so, too yeah. much too much engineering stuff there. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, sort of misconceptions about various different types of boats uh you know misconceptions about monohulls and and misconceptions about catamarans um and i mean you 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 were even talking about it when you bought your monohull you had a hard time finding a deep thin keel boat on the east coast of the united states because most of them were uh, shallower draft bulb keels and that affects performance uh, significantly. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. They just think, oh, if I'm buying a Catalina or a Hunter or a Island packet, oh, it's a monohull. They're all going to be the same, but they're very, very different. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. And, and it just, you know, in our, our conversation stimulated by one of your episodes, you had a guy talking about, uh, I did an absolutely great job. He's talking about sailing school and, and he started talking about, uh, monohull versus catamaran as is said in popular lore and uh and 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 you know describe that and described it well and there's no untruth in what he's saying it's just an incomplete picture and the the idea yes. that i think it was described as monohulls have deep keels and go upwind really well catamarans have shallow keels and uh don't start sailing well until you're off the wind. Once you're off the wind, they do absolutely great. Uh, the other thing, catamarans don't tack well because of weather veining and and uh, and going. Uh, you know, and from from his world, and again, that that's popular lore. Most people believe that, uh, and it's just not. It, it's not true. There, there, there's more to not true in general. There's way more to it than that. Um, going upwind so i have a daggerboard cap and uh you know and you've probably heard it said many times the minute there's two sailboats somewhere going in the same direction there's a race on so and, and you can see it you sail a catamaran anywhere you know sort of north of florida there's very few catamarans uh per capita so everybody looks at catamaran and says i'm gonna go sail upwind against that catamaran well you know good luck uh you know taking my sea wind upwind unless you got a pretty good performing boat uh and uh, and you go well why is that is there not truth to it yeah absolutely it's truth to it so anyway here, here's the way i put it and it's pretty simple to understand um and if you're just a cruiser and you just want to sail around in a warm afternoon and you want to have a drink after when you're you're in the morning uh you can ignore this but if you really like sailing important to understand this monohulls do not necessarily go upwind well you, know, you mentioned boats, Island Packet, Contessa. Uh, there's a whole category of boats, and people call them blue water boats. They have something called full keels. So if you look underwater, the keel will run a, a, a significant percentage of the length of the boat, right? And it and and those boats do not go upwind well. They have other attributes. They'll track better in a sea. You'll go downwind in a following sea and not wobble all over the place as it will. And probably your boat does a pretty good wobble 
uh, yep. going downwind. You know, it's just it's part of the design. Uh, fin keel. Most modern monohulls are fin keel. I have exactly that. It looks like you took a shark or a whale with that dorsal fin and flipped it upside down, and 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 that keel does the underwater work for you. Let's look at catamarans. Uh, the, most charter cats are, you know, they use the word condo cat. Some people use it disparagingly. disparagingly. I use it and I go, I want to go charter cat. Down the BVIs, I'm going, yes, I think I want one of those. Big, heavy, everything on them. They sail and you're in the trade winds down there in 20 knots. They'll sail for you. They don't go upwind very well. Why not? If you look underneath, they have something called mini keels on them. And the mini keels are long just like full keel sailboats, they're long and they're shallow. Look at airplanes. You really don't see many airplanes that have uh, you know stubby wings, the length of the fuselage on them. You know, in fact, if you want to get in, efficient in an airplane, look at a glider, very, very long wings. It's the area of the wings that does the lifting. The ends of the wings drag you. So it's why you see winglets in the end of jet airplanes because the end of a wing is a real problem. So the longer, and a narrower a, a a foil, be it an airfoil or be it a hydrofoil, you know, foil in the water is the more efficient it is. So when you get a monohull and it's got a really deep, you know, you look at race boats, some race boats will have 10, 12 foot deep keels, long, long, skinny keels, and they go upwind incredibly well. They just slice upwind. Uh the uh that that that, that's the dominant thing. So underwater efficient, underwater inefficient. And if you buy an underwater inefficient boat and you try to go upwind on it, what happens the farther upwind you go, you sheet your sails in more. You pull in the back of the sail. The sail goes more parallel to your boat. The pressure forces in your sail, more of the force from your sail is pushing sideways, less pulling you ahead. So you need, when your boat's going through the water, and a lot of people are not familiar sailing, people don't get this, your boat has to crab through the water to resist that sideways force, it's called leeway. And if you've got an efficient foil, you can do absolutely fine. If you have an inefficient foil, it does something called stalling. And again, you think of airplanes, anybody knows anything about an airplane, when your foils stall, you're in trouble. Well, it is that, that's what it is in a sailboat. That's you're trying to go upwind and you just don't go upwind anymore. You just kind of just sit there and bloop sideways. So uh, yeah, daggerboard cat, uh, a, a you know, racer, deep uh, monohull keel, yeah, you'll go upwind absolutely wonderfully. Uh, and uh, if you have any fish in underwater, somebody owns an island packet, they're beautiful boats, they do great things, a bunch of great things. But going upwind or trying to race another boat upwind, it ain't going to do it. Not not on. Yeah. So as you're saying that, uh, which I agree with everything you've said, I'm thinking to myself, so really, there's not that much difference between cats and monohulls. It more has to do with the difference of what's underwater. So if I want to design a monohull that goes well upwind and I want to design a cat that goes well upwind, I know what to do. <laughs> I yep. put deep fin uh, keels on it. And if I'm more interested in going downwind and maybe, uh, you know, uh, being able to not wobble as much as my boat does when I'm going downwind, I have a different under a different configuration underneath. I maybe have a fuller keel on it. So this to me all has to do with two things number one you can't you can't generalize and 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 because as an engineer you tell me if you tell me what performance characteristics you want 
I can design you a product that'll meet those performance characteristics. What you can't tell me is I wanted to do everything well, <laughs> because that's not possible. Everything's a compromise. Right? As I as I as I make it go better upwind, I start decreasing its ability to go downwind. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Upwind, downwind. The trade-offs, trade-offs. Uh, you need to you want to go upwind well. And number one, we talk about the underwater. The other part is above water, right? Okay, you think mm -hmm. about what the wind is doing to your boat when you're trying to go upwind. I mean, first of all, it's blowing you back. You got a boat sitting in the That's wind. Right. That you just got a drag, just dull old, you know, I don't, if your car in a windstorm, the wind's trying to shove you back. If you're on, you know, slick ice, you might actually blow blow down. Your car is stuck to the ground, so you don't worry about it. Uh, your sails, there, there, there's, there's air flowing. When you're going upwind, the airflow on both sides of your sails, the frictional forces are pulling you backwards, right? So you need to get sails that are shaped right to give you lots of lift and little drag. Uh, triangular sails, right, which is the, the, the standard, are yes. not a really great configuration for sailing. Uh, you know, again, you get into, uh, it, you know, it's tip vortex. Your loss is tip vortex. One side of your sail is high pressure. The other is low pressure. That's what does your sailing for you. So, you know, if you had an airplane, if the wing sails, uh, you know, anybody ever watched, uh, if you haven't watched it, you should watch Sail GP. Uh, That's right. Is yep. going YouTube watch sail GP, and you, you'll see the ultimate evolution of you know where sailing is right now, and see boats doing fifty miles an hour on, on under sail. Uh, those sails yeah, are 50, wings. 50, 50 miles an hour in a twenty knot breeze. <laughs> in a twenty knot breeze, it's absolutely amazing. But you look at those wings; uh, the, their sails they're actually wings, and uh, and and why are they not triangular shaped? Well, they they put a wing there; it's flat on the top. My rig and my catamaran is a flat top. It's a square top sail. And you'll see most racing boats now have square top sails. They're tall, narrow, uh, non-triangular. The jib flows into it. The jib's fractional, so you put a smaller jib on it. That jib is like a, uh, you know, I play around a lot with my, my, my rig to get the airflow right over it. And I'm just obsessive about it. I'm not the greatest race in the world or anything like that, but I'm just obsessive. I love sailing. I love watching the airflow. Telltales all over the sails. You got to keep that wing, that sail up there from stalling, right? Yeah. So you put telltales the back of the sail. If those telltales on the, on the back edge of the sail wrap around, you have a big separation bubble, i.e. stall. Your airplane's going to fall out of the, fall out of the air. So, Doing that and trying to keep that all rolling. Look, here's the main points. Uh, design a sail so it's got a flat top on it. Uh, and the triangle point of a sail, just dragging it through the air. The mast in front of and the top of that sail is disturbing all the air over the top six, eight feet of your, your sail. You're getting nothing from it, but you're kind of just dragging it through. There's a big vortex swirling around that, right? Low pressure air. Is is drawing in the high pressure air from the other side. It pulls up there, turns into a great big vortex, and that just robs energy uh, from your whole sail. Uh, so yeah, efficient upwind sail looks like a wing. It's got a jib down there. We know what that jib does. That jib's like a slat on a short takeoff airplane, and it just directs air over the backside of the sail to keep it from separating, keeping that that stalling from happening. And when you do that, when you got great upwind, uh, oh, so when you got great above the water aerodynamics, and you got great hydrodynamics underneath, 
and you got the right wind for your boat, it's just a pleasure. The thing just wants, it feels like it just slice, slices up wind. And, uh, and and that's true whatever boat you have. Monohull, uh, you know, versus catamaran. There, there are differences. Um, actually, I'll tell you an interesting one. If you want to go, and if you race catamarans versus monohulls like I do, when the wind goes down to three knots, it's uh, kind of disappointing that you're relatively lightweight catamaran and you got these, you know, things with these big blocks of lead uh, and they're just ghosting past you and you're going, how come I can't go that fast? Yeah. <laughs> uh, surface area, skin friction with the water. That's the problem. Right. Catamarans have more of that. Uh, when the wind goes up, catamarans have very slender hulls. They slice through the water instead of building up a bow wave. And when you get waves in front of you, you can cut through the waves rather, you know, in your monohull, you go up into a, a big sea and every time you slam down in it, it pushes water sideways and slows you down. We get way less of that. You still get it, but you get way less of it in a catamaran. Right. So right. anyway, that's, that's, that's yeah. the major differences on it. So. Yeah. Well, that was very good. I, I really enjoyed that, that conversation about the various different parameters that impact all of these things and that, uh, be careful about general, being ge general i can't say that word be careful about assuming that what you read in a forum is correct <laughs> right i guess is the best way to put that and the folklore out there about particular monohulls or catamarans is, is just that it's folklore and and as you have done do your research understand what parameters are important to you and how you're going to use your boat and that should impact what you buy i mean that I, I think that's the that's the number because there's a boat for everyone. Yep. If you want to, if you want, if you want a cat that goes fast, there are ones out there that sail upwind really well and go fast. If if you want a different design, if you want a, a nice fancy liveaboard and you're going to live on it full time, you, maybe you want a different set of parameters. Uh, so I think that's the important thing is have a good, accurate understanding of how you're going to use your boat, and then I think you can find one that meets your parameters. So, uh, make a comment on that. I think of buying this last boat, my wife and I, you know, my wife was a person who was pretty scared to sail years and years ago. And now she's just absolutely loves sailing and, uh, you know, trying to buy a boat that, you know, keeps her enthusiasm up and everything else. Uh, I had to narrow down. I had two boats, as I said before, a Daz Cat built in Southern England, beautiful, you know, boutique boat. Uh, they win races in England, you know, hardcore racing in England. Uh, they're a 20 knot boat. I really wanted a Daz Cat. And uh, the Sea Wind, which is a, it's a performance cruising boat. Uh, and uh, we compared the two of them. I'll tell you, one of the big factors that swung it was the the bathroom in the, uh, in, 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 in the <laughs> yep. Sea Wind. And it's got this nice, you know, the Sea Wind had this nice, highly developed bathroom with a glass shower enclosure in it and everything else. My wife says, yeah, I want one of those. Looked at, you know, Dazcat and they're much more stripped down racing. Now they said, I'd be fair to them, they're, they're a custom builder. They said, we'll build you whatever you want. But the endeavor just looked a little bit too big to, you know, spruce the thing up inside such as my wife loved it. So th th that's the compromises. Uh, you know, what did I lose on it? I, I, I lost eight knots at top speed. And, uh, sometimes I regret right. that, but I'm like, it is what it is. Happy wife, happy life, right? No. Yeah, that's exactly my point. Understand what parameters are important to you. <laughs> and then you can, you can find a boat that'll, that'll come close to those parameters. It may not be exactly, but it'll be close. Right on. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, 
Uh, Doug, I really enjoyed our conversation. You were a great, great guest. Uh, thank you so much, number one, for reaching out to me via that email, that very thoughtful email you sent, and then uh, being a great guest on the show. Thank you very much. And when you when you sail up to uh, the Bitter Lakes, you make sure you give me a show. Yeah, I certainly will do that. Uh, thanks again. Thank you. Bela, that was an interesting interview. I loved hearing about Nova Scotia. Um, I've never been there, but it's a place I'd love to go to. And it was also really interesting to hear Doug's experience with boats, especially with catamarans. And I really liked at the end your discussion about quality and manufacturing processes, because you know, the business professor in my heart that always kind of makes me sing and you, you're getting a little bit more into my area of expertise rather than the various kinds of poles and, and dagger boards and things. But what were your major takeaways? Well, yeah, I've been to Nova Scotia. Yeah, I, I helped a friend bring a, a boat back from Halifax down to Baltimore. Um, and we, so we spent like four or five days in Nova Scotia. What a beautiful place. Oh, gosh, it, was it just gorgeous. And Halifax was a big city, just like any other big city. Uh, but then we sort of bopped along the coast uh, for a couple of days and uh, stayed in a place called Shelburne for three days, I think, waiting for some weather. And I was, I was impressed by how friendly the people are there. Uh, it was just, just really, you know, salt of the earth folks. There's the industries there are like fishing and lumber. At least that's what I saw. I'm sure there's other stuff going on there. Uh, and it was just, to me, it's one of those places that, um, uh, you got to put it, if you're a sailor and you want to go cruise places, it's got to be on your bucket list. If you're on the Northeast of uh, you know, or, or the East coast of the United States, you got to make a trip to Nova Scotia. And, you know, I, the best time to do that is July or August. <laughs> uh, and it's not crowded. It's beautiful. Um, and it's just, uh, just a nice place to be. So I would, to me, it's beautiful. It's, 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 uh, should be on every sailor's bucket list. Cool. I like it. Now, let's talk a little bit about these different types of sailboats, because, you know, this is, starts to get a little bit above my, you know, level of comprehension. And it sounds like, like, okay, you pick the kind of sailing that you want to do, and then you kind of choose the type of boat that you want. I mean, how important are things like the hulls and the shape of the dagger boards and things like this? Does it make a big difference, or is it just kind of a nice to, nice to have? Well, it's a good question, Mike. Uh, and and I think I've said this before on, on other episodes. I think what's important here is if you're thinking about buying a boat, you want to be true to yourself as to how you're actually going to use that boat. Not how you think you may use the boat <laughs> or how you might dream about in 10 years you're going to use the boat. But, you know, for the short next relatively short period of time, how are you actually going to use the boat? Uh, because it's amazing for such a small industry. I mean, there's, there's, there's not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of sailboats sold every year, right? It's mm -hmm. in the United sure. States, it's probably, you know, maybe a thousand boats, sailboats a year. Um, I'm talking bigger boats, not, not little, he probably even includes the little ones. And so, but there's there's this huge diversity in in the various different types because they're almost all fundamentally handmade and, and and they may not be custom made for you, but fundamentally they almost are because the model runs are short. Like my boat is is uh, serial number one hundred and thirty six, 
And I think they made a total of less than 200 of them. <laughs> so, you know, from a manufacturing perspective, that's not a big production run. Um, so the point being is there's a lot of different design parameters. So if you want to sail across oceans, that means you're hopefully going to be sailing downwind most of the time. You want the wind at your back. It's much more comfortable. So if you're sailing downwind, that lends itself to a certain type of layout of the sails. It lends itself to a certain type of hull shape. <laughs> it lends itself to a, a bunch of parameters that revolve around the sails, the size of the sails, where they're located, and the hull shape. If, if you want to race, which means you want to go fast, that lends itself to a totally different type of hull shape. And when you're racing, sometimes you're going into the wind and sometimes you're going downwind. So again, a bunch of different set of parameters. And catamaran, whether it's a monohull or a catamaran, those, th th there's those types of parameters involved in each one of those types of designs. So you can, you can make a catamaran that points very well into the wind. By, by pointing into the wind, I mean if, you're, if the wind is blowing from the north and you're trying to go north, <laughs> you, can, you can't go directly north if you're sailing. It just doesn't mm -hmm. work. But you got to tack. You got to tack. You got to go off. You got to go 30 degrees off wind to one side. And then you know, maybe you tack and you go 30 degrees on the other side of, of north. And in some boats, you're going like 45, they can only point to like 45 degrees into the wind because of the keel shape, the sails, the hull shape. Other boats can point at 30 degrees. Other boats can point at ah, 20, okay. 25. That's what that meant. That makes right? sense. Now. Yep. So now if, now if you're racing, that makes a big difference. Huge difference. Right. <laughs> right. This is just back to trigonometry class. Yep. So Absolutely. You know, the difference All between about 45, the yeah, difference between forty-five degrees and thirty degrees is huge. So, but that that makes for a less comfortable. But if you're think, thinking of going around the world, right? You most people tend to go downwind, and and it just works better. It's much more comfortable. So how you point doesn't matter. So you can you can do other things to the hull that make it more comfortable. So it goes through the waves better. It doesn't pound as much that changes the shape of the hull but then it doesn't point very well <laughs> okay so it's a trade-off one or the other right yes it's yeah. all about trade-offs comfort comfort versus speed it's all about trade-offs and i think that's what's the important part about this conversation is be true to what you want to do with it because that will impact the type of boat that you want to buy uh if 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 you want to sail around the world then you want to go down the one path if you want to race you go down a different path then my boat is sort of a, a little bit of each middle. right which yeah. means it's a compromise on everything <laughs> mm -hmm. but you knew that going in right? but i that's knew that going key. in right and and so um so that's that's what you got to think about and i think that to me is the big takeaway of this it's just like cars right there's a whole bunch of different car models some mm -hmm. some go fast go straight speed. <laughs> some go around corners better uh, some are more comfortable, uh, you know, et cetera. So it's it's the same thing. There's a bunch of design parameters, and it's important to understand those because they will make a big difference in how the boat sails. And if 
if you buy a boat that's made for cruising downwind, but you're trying to go upwind all the time, because where I sail, half the time I'm going upwind because the wind predominantly blows from the north, or excuse me, from the south. And, you know, Narragansett Bay runs north-south. <laughs> so for half my trip, I'm going downwind. The other half the trip, I'm tacking back and forth because I'm trying to go upwind. So, so having a boat that sort of does both of those reasonably well, but not any one of them exceptionally well is important. Interesting. So if you predominantly were boating north-south, no, is there a situation where you don't, you wouldn't be going upwind as much? What would that look like? Well, that's when the wind blows from the, uh, on Narragansett Bay, that would be from the, when the wind blows from the east or the west. But you always got to get back. But then I'm always 50-50. But then the wind is at my side. Ah, okay. Uh, So it's not either in, in, in or or out. It's could, there's really three possibilities. Right. Right. Okay. Right. I mean, the wind can be from any direction, but any, most places have a predominant wind direction. And on Narragansett Bay, it's from the south. And, and, and then, you know, so three out of four days, it'll be, or, or four out of seven days, it'll be from the south, right? And then the other three days of the week, once it'll be from the north, once it'll be from right. the west, and once it'll be from the east. And you know those patterns. And so, right, historically, right, right you know that data. So you can buy a boat essentially that right. maximizes the performance for the main body of sailing that you would do. Right. Or if you just want okay. like an all-around cruising boat, uh, because right. you, but I get out of the bay, then the wind is different. <laughs> right. right. So, right. So, but it goes back again, to knowing your use, right? Right. Know you but, be true to your a, use. But there are several different dimensions that you have to look at. That's and right. Holes are only one of them. That's right. Right. And, and then, then the holes hole... in. We've talked about this before. That also impacts the kind of the living space, right? One That's hole right. versus two, right? We've talked That's about right. that. That's right. Catamarans so have. That's great living space right. and they do some things really well uh and and even even uh monohulls if if you have uh a, a a boat that's kind of made for blue water cruising as they say that that predominantly goes downwind the hulls tend to be shaped uh, uh they have a lot of a lot of hull in the water mm-hmm. whereas whereas uh boats that are made to go fast have much more of a flat bottom hull with a mm-hmm. fin sticking down or or a mm-hmm. dagger board right on it uh, yep. on, on it right with a with just a sh- like a fin sticking down so because the more wetted surface you have the more friction you have so as mm-hmm. you increase the surface area of what's in the water underneath you slow underneath down. You, you're going <laughs> to slow down right so Again, it's Makes there's sense. all these design there's all these design parameters. It's super complex, you know. Yeah. Uh, but just figure out predominantly how you're going to use it. Think about the space you want too, because that's a that's where if you're if you're going to live on the boat, if you're just going day sailing, it doesn't matter too much. But if you're going to spend a week or two on your boat, then thinking about you know the layout down below, how much water can the boat hold? Uh, how mm-hmm. much fuel does it hold? How big is the holding tank for the mm-hmm. waste water and stuff, right? Those things start to play into that. So there's a boat for everybody. Cool. cool. Yeah. And it was interesting to learn about a different part of the North 
Atlantic coastline, right? It's a little farther north than you usually venture, but I like bringing in that little bit of diversity, you know? Yeah. So yeah. that was great. Yeah, I enjoyed my conversation with Doug. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. So, all right, what do you think? Time to wrap it up? Sounds good, Mike. All right. Well, listeners, I uh, hope you learned a lot as we did. And thanks for joining us for yet another episode. If you have questions about what we've discussed, as always, please feel free to get in touch with us. Our email is sailingtheeast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, hit that follow button on your podcasting app. And if you know of someone that would be a good guest on the show, uh, let us know. Send them our way and we'll uh, see if we can get them uh, to be a guest. So uh, hope to see you out there. It's wintertime here. Uh, for the first day this season, I went skiing yesterday. Uh, so that, that has all started. So signing off from chilly upstate New York. See you all soon. Thanks, Bela. And from over here in Münster, Germany, where it's also unseasonably cold, it's, uh, as I speak, uh, 34 degrees Fahrenheit, 2 degrees Celsius. And we actually got some snow. It's not really stuck too much, but it's a rare snowfall here in Münster, Germany. But I'll see you next time, Bela. Thanks. Thank you.